Hi, everyone. The first reading is from Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. The second reading is from 1 Timothy chapter 4. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I suspect that um, some people will have detected uh, a problem even in the title of my talk, A Doubter's Guide to the Christian Faith. I imagine some people will be saying, oh yeah, which one? Which Christian faith? There are so many brands. You're sitting in an Anglican church. Is this brand Anglican, A Doubter's Guide to the Anglican Faith? There are Roman Catholics down the road. There are Baptists, there are Pentecostals, and so on. And I have had many people over the years put to me that you Christians can't even work out what you believe, so why should I take you seriously? Get back to me when you've got some consensus. And there is some force to the complaint, right? Because Christians have disagreed on loads of stuff through the centuries. Sometimes they have come to fisticuffs as a result of their differences, and it's really unpleasant. But as I often try and point out to people who have this particular complaint, um, there is a way of summarizing an agreed consensus Christianity. There is, there is one way. Because there is a statement of the Christian faith that comes uh, from the century after the New Testament that is agreed upon by all the brands. The Catholics, the Pentecostals, the Anglicans, the Lutherans, and so on. It is this Apostles' Creed that Justin has mentioned. Three stanzas that capture the Christian faith. Just 83 words all Christians agree on. I'm not sure how many words it is in the English, someone can count and tell me later, but in the original, it's just 83 words. And it's got a lot of content. And the interesting thing is, um, even a church like Hillsong has taken to um, thinking about this Apostles' Creed. In 2015, 
they started to say it in public and even wrote a song uh, about the Apostles' Creed that went to number one in Indonesia. I have no way of explaining that, how the biggest Muslim country in the world uh, accepted this song, but it's pretty cool. I say even Hillsong, I, I don't mean any um, criticism of Hillsong, it's just that they're more famous for innovation than they are uh, tradition. But it's kind of fun that they thought that uh, the Apostles' Creed was worth uh, celebrating. And the, the core of the Apostles' Creed does give you a pretty healthy, substantial introduction to the Christian faith. At least three major themes leap out of this creed. And um, it, it, this really sets the direction for uh, these three talks. The reality of God, the history of Jesus, and the life of the Spirit. And I want to take each in turn, beginning just today with the opening stanza of the Apostles' Creed and the reality of God. The Creed begins, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And obviously this uh, opening line of the summary of Christianity echoes, recalls the opening line of the Bible just read to us, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the thing is, this expression, heaven and earth, means everything. I mean, in ancient biblical thought, if you say God created heaven and earth, that is basically leaving nothing for anyone else to do. It's saying God made it all. We'd say God made the universe. Now, yes, I get that that is theology 101, but I want to put it to you tonight, that this is a philosophical dynamite, and when you come to believe it, it can radically reshape your life in positive ways. Let me see if I can explain this. Firstly, it means that God is the source of creation and not part of creation. It's very clear, it says, God made heaven and earth, all right? Uh, God is not part of heaven and earth. By definition, the source of creation can't be part of creation. The source of time and space can't be itself part of time and space. Um, and this is important to understand because there's a massive distinction between a God and what Christians mean by God. Christians don't mean like the fairies at the bottom of the garden or Santa Claus, or even Zeus from Greek uh, religion, or Thor from Nordic religion. If those things exist, they exist as objects in the creation. They are part of the universe, but that isn't the claim for God. The claim for God is He is the source of all things, not part of all things. It would be a mistake to think of God as if He were kind of... Um, a magic wardrobe hidden in one of the rooms of the house of creation. And if you search the house well enough with the right instruments, you'll find God. You'll find the magic wardrobe. Maybe hidden in the DNA code. Uh, maybe, you know, when we get to Mars eventually, in outer space. No. God is not like an object in the house. God is like the architect of the house. 
And I think you'll agree, you don't expect to find the architect hiding in the basement. <laughs> that would be truly creepy. But everything about the house points to the mind of the architect. It makes no sense to run through the house, opening every door, going up into the attic, going down into the basement, and declaring the absence of the architect. All the while missing the most profound point that you're in a house with rooms and hallways and doors that work and windows in the first place. God is the source of all things. He isn't part of creation. Which may sound like um, mere philosophy, but actually it changes how one lives in the world. It at least means that creation is a gift. It's not purely accidental. It is not haphazard. It's not wreckage, space junk. It's come from a father. That's the Christian claim. A father has created all things. The, the reason I want to point this out is because Westerners, even good, secular, atheist Westerners, don't realize how profoundly Christian they are in their view of the world. I don't mean to upset anyone by, by saying that, but it is absolutely clear, because most Westerners think of creation as pretty good. We've, we've grown a very positive view of the body and of wine and of the beach, and we even call products goods. Have you ever thought about that? Just that English word. Why do we call goods goods? Because they're good. But the thing is, in the ancient world, if you said that, they think, what do you mean it's good? Creation is accidental and haphazard. One perfect example, but I could give many from the Celts over in the West, in Britain and, and, and France, um, through the Nordic cultures, um, right into uh, Asia Minor and on into Persia and into the Far East. They shared this negative view of physical creation. But um, the Babylonians had a view of creation that is pretty well expressed in a document called the Enuma Elish, uh, found in the late 1800s in Iraq in seven tablets. And, it, and it, uh, we know it was read on New Year's Day in Babylon. And to cut a long story short, it, it basically says that there was a great war of the gods in the time before time, and the wreckage of that war is us, and the stars, and the rivers, and the trees, and the rocks, and the mountains. It's wreckage at the end of the war. It isn't designed, it isn't a gift, it is haphazard, and the bits and pieces of the cut-up gods form the bits and pieces of uh, the heavens and so on. In fact, humans are made out of the blood of the losing god, Kinju. And uh, the gods decide to make a slave creature whose perpetual duty is to offer up sacrifices to the gods, and so they make from Kinju's blood human beings. Anyway, so you, you read that every year and you go, okay, I know my place in the universe, and... I know not to think of physical stuff as ordered, beautiful, 
good. And if you were in that culture, instead of our profoundly Christianized secular culture, you would look at the opening uh, chapter of the Bible and think that is really odd. Here's the opening chapter of the Bible, or a truncated version of it. I want you to notice um, how often it says, and it was good. Seven times, if you can't be bothered counting. God makes light, and it is good, and um, God makes the seas, and they're good too, and the vegetables, they're pretty good. The moon and the sun, they're good. God created the sea creatures, they're good too, and the wild animals, and they're good. And then in case you missed the whole point, at the very end it says, and God saw all that He'd made, and it was very good. I mean, the author of Genesis could not have tried harder to convince us that the, the stuff of creation is good, ordered, it's come from the hand of a good creator. This perspective, I think, challenges not just ancient pagan thought, Enuma Elish, or the Celts, or Vedic religion in Persia, it challenges modern atheism, actually. And Richard Dawkins has a very famous statement that I think is um, a window into how one, if one is a, an atheist, naturalist, how one views physical stuff. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Just soak that up for a moment. I wouldn't suggest that Richard Dawkins lives like he believes this. Uh, Dawkins enjoys, you know, his glass of brandy as much as anyone else. He, he loves a good meal, he loves the creation, but, but when he thinks about where his atheism drives him, he is left to think there is no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference, because there is no God. Things are completely accidental. Didn't start by intention. There's no story written into the fabric of creation. It's not going to a clear end point. It is accidental. And it's in this context that the Apostles' Creed says, nope, God is a Father who is the source of heaven and earth, and therefore physical stuff can be viewed as a gift from a Father's hand. Stuff is brimming with significance to be received with thanksgiving as our New Testament passage put it a moment ago. It's a little bit like my wedding ring. Okay, so here's my wedding ring. My wife uh, has told me it's made of gold. Okay, so we'll just go with that. Um, I could sell this tomorrow, probably, get a few hundred bucks, I imagine. Uh, but obviously I'm not going to do that. And the value of this ring to me is way more than the material value that I could get at a shop, obviously. Because this ring is not just 
the material reality, this ring is overflowing with the significance of a gift of love. My wife took my hand and said, I, Elizabeth, in the presence of God, take you, John, to be my husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, and so on. And all of that meaning of a gift of love is present in this object. Now, it doesn't mean I don't value the material reality. I do, but I get both, the form and matter and the significance of this ring as a gift of love. And my point is that if you believe that God is a Father and that this Father has created heaven and earth as a good gift, then you can live in this world as if it is brimming with significance. The significance of a gift of love from a father. All of which means there is a flip side. Because if everything is so significant, it means it's possible to misuse these things. Follow the logic with me. If, if everything was without value, including the body and your body, how I live in the body, how I treat other people, how I use or misuse the things of creation has no real significance. And actually, there are some Greek philosophers who thought exactly that. It doesn't matter how you act in the body. It's just the body. But if it is a gift from a father, it means it's possible to misuse the gift and so offend the giver. I think many Australians imagine that the thing that offends God, if there is a God, the thing that offends God are the naughty things people get up to, the vices, swearing too much, drinking too much, illicit sex. And um, part of the reason lots of Aussies think that is because the church has banged on about that, okay? And so, that sort of entered the, our culture. But the thing is, that is not the fundamental offense, according to the Bible. If we're to use the word sin, vices isn't really what sin is about. The fundamental offense to God, the fundamental sin, is agreeing there's more to life than material reality and then just settling for material things all the same. Agreeing that there must be a God in the universe, the source of the universe, and then refusing God any place in our life. That would surely be the great offense. Loving the gifts and not the giver. Loving the stuff of creation and not the creator. Now, I'm not just making this up. This is not just John's favorite definition of sin. I get this from the expert on the whole topic, Jesus, because he once gave a parable, part of which was designed to give a picture, in his mind, a picture of what a sinner is. It's called the famous um, parable of the prodigal son. Rembrandt did a beautiful uh, rendition of it. It's a son who leaves the father and then comes back to the father and the father embraces the son. But, but the thing is, when Jesus comes to describe the offense of the son, it goes like this. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. 
So he divided up his property between them, and not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth. Let's think about this. When Jesus wanted to describe a sinner, he said, it's like a son who wants everything the father has to give and nothing to do with the father. A sinner, if I have to use that language, is a human being who wants all the gifts of creation and nothing to do with the Creator. It isn't the vices that are the key problem, it is the rejection of the giver of good gifts. And to my mind, this picture of the sinner is very modern, actually. I mean, it's ancient, but it's modern, because Australians are world experts at this, loving the gifts and forgetting the giver. I I really think um, our culture is an unusual blend of cultures that has resulted in in, in our, our culture not being as commercialistic as some cultures, but I think we might be just about the most hedonistic of cultures. And I use my language carefully. There are cultures that are more into sort of material possessions and the best, biggest, you know, widescreen TV and so on. But Aussies seem obsessed with experience in creation. A beautiful bottle of wine sitting on the beach. Material stuff matters. Lifestyle matters to us. So we love the gifts, but in our culture, we're not very good at thanking the giver, apologizing to the giver for the misuse of these things. We are sinners. Some years ago, I was um, invited onto a boat for a Christmas party, sailing around Pittwater, uh, mostly fr- friends of my wife from a, from a playgroup. And uh, I got talking to this woman uh, on the boat as the sun went down. We were drinking beautiful wine, and the pate was gorgeous, and the cheese was lovely. And this uh, woman, this friend of my wife, started to tell me how well things were going. Her husband had got a promotion. They were feeling financially secure. They'd bought a property on the northern beaches, uh, and the kids were just about to start school, so she felt like she had some me time. And she went on and on like this, and I'm sort of resisting the, the jealousy urge. And, and, and then she paused without any prompting from me. And she sort of looked off into the distance and she said, but you know, John, sometimes I wonder if maybe there's more than all of this. Perhaps a spiritual side that I've not looked into. And then almost as quickly as she'd begun, she stopped. And I'm not sure that, you know, maybe she saw my eyes light up and she thought, oh, I don't want to talk to the God botherer. But she stopped and she said, oh, but I'm not that interested in it. I don't really want to talk about it. You want some more wine? And I didn't have the quick wit to take that anywhere. I just said, yes, please. And, you know, off we were, you know, talking about how lovely the shimmering on the water was and the pate was gorgeous. And I came away thinking that is classic Aussie spirituality. Loving the stuff, the gifts. Knowing that there's more but settling for them all the same. 
and forgetting the giver. It is just as well, Jesus said, that the Father is in the business of welcoming back the prodigals. I'll say more about this next week, but the trajectory of Jesus' life is not simply to tell us that there is a Creator, not simply to tell us to live lives of thankfulness in the world, not not just there to tell us that we've offended the Almighty, but to see people welcomed back. Get this lovely image in Jesus' parable of this prodigal coming to his senses and going back to the Father. And as you can see, the Father was still, when the son was still a long way off, his Father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Embrace, welcome. More about that next week. My point for now is very simple, threefold. From the beginning, Christians have always said they believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That means at least three things, that God is the source of creation, not an object in creation. That creation is therefore a gift from the hand of a father. And that means it's possible to offend the giver. And it is just as well he is in the business of welcoming us back. Let me pray. Lord, maybe there are many things to distract us uh, from the truth of your existence, of your gifts. Help us, Lord, to have clear minds, to think clearly about all of this stuff, that we might come to a point where we recognize you in all things and find ourselves warmly embraced by you. In Jesus' name, amen.